0: Welcome to Digital Therapeutics edition of Digital Health Today, and I'm your host, Eugene Borovitch. In the last episode, I thoroughly enjoyed speaking with Ed Cox, who was CEO of Dthera, a DTX company that focused on Alzheimer's. Ed is currently serving as EVP and Global Head of Digital Medicines at Eversana. Today, I'm speaking with none other than Brent Vaughn, another early pioneer in the DTX space, who also straddled both sides of the equation as an entrepreneur at Cognoa, and now Cognito, and a venture capitalist in Morningside Ventures. But before we dive in, Brent and I crossed paths for sure while I was still in New York City and he was CEO and co-founder of Wellness Effects. But my decline in cognitive function does not remember the actual moment, nevertheless I thoroughly enjoyed getting to know Brent, and I can tell his neurons are constantly firing as a deep thinker, but more importantly, a doer in this industry. And now we jump to my conversation with Brent Vaughn. I am here today with Brent Vaughn, the CEO of Cognito, uh, but I will uh, let him explain who he is and his background. So welcome.
1: Thanks a lot. and um, Thanks for having me. Yeah, so I'm Brent Vaughn, the CEO of Cognito. My background is coming up leading product and business development in biotech, pharma, and device. My foray kind of into the digital therapeutic side of it started when I was working at a translational medicine company a number of years ago. Mm -hmm. And a friend of mine had built the consumer side of WebMD and decided that what if we could build WebMD for healthy people? And those brainstormings and whiteboard sessions turned into me joining as co-founder of Wellness FX where we built a direct consumer diagnostic and telemedicine platform and stood that up in 46 states before selling that to one of the players in the nutrition space. And then from that, I was able to be at the right place and meet the scientific founder and be the co-founder of Cognoa, which we built into one of the leaders in the digital therapeutic space with two breakthrough designations for the lead products and the lead product, uh, which will be the first diagnostic device hopefully approved, allow primary care physicians to diagnose autism. And that's being submitted to the FDA now. So my background is really on the product side, looking at where novel technologies can meet unmet medical needs. That's the thing, filling that gap yep. in ways that people haven't done before. That's the thing that, that I find fun.
0: Amazing. And, and now I know we were trying, before the recording, we were talking about where we actually met, because to me, you know, this podcast is about digital therapeutics, but it's also very much about the individual who is a, as a trailblazer of this. And I think you mentioned wellness effects, and it just connected the neurons that I was still in New York back then. And I think we might have interacted with that because I was looking at wellness effects for the Health 2.0. But anyway, that's just, a, you know, a, took us back on the memory lane. So let's go back to a little bit of the early days, especially as you sort of joined as a co-founder at Cognoa. What was that experience like? I don't even think the digital therapeutics as a term really existed, or at least not to the extent that we know now. What was that road like?
1: Yeah, it didn't really exist. Is I know a lot of people claim ownership over things. As far as I can tell, um, I think Sean Duffy, who was just starting a mod, a kind of down the street from us in San Francisco, he, I think he's the one that may be pinned it first. And I think, uh, you know, Eddie and the folks at Achille, as well as Corey and his team at Pear have kind of made it famous. But yeah, nobody knew what we were. I still remember after we sold the company, I had a couple of VCs who had passed on around round, come back to me about a year later and said, geez, if you brought X to us now, we would invest, right? Yeah. And you know, tell, tell people what we figured out how to build was a concierge MD squared or MD VIP service at an Amazon storefront and price. And had we been perceptive enough to explain it with that one sentence, we might have grown into a bigger company that's selling it.
0: Yeah, I mean, listen, sometimes it's just timing. Sometimes it's the wording. And, you know, I'm a big believer that uh, while grit has a lot to do with it and hard work, sometimes it's luck as well as a part of the equation, right?
1: you know, all all of the teams that I've built uh, have heard me say many times, you know, it's usually better to be lucky than good, and you should try to aim to figure out how to be both, right? Mm -hmm. But I think some of the things that we learned there, right, in the first, it was digital health then and digital medicine, right? Digital therapeutics hadn't really been coined. You've seen how it's kind of, the industry's evolved a little bit. I mean, so we started with B2C. We built a B2C marketplace for people to have in-depth diagnostic panels and be more engaged in managing their health. And so- we saw a few things, right? Healthcare investors were wary of B2C. When you tell a consumer that it is not covered by insurance, it makes your product an inferior good in a lot of people's minds. And so you end up having to spend more on acquisition because it's B2C. And at the same time, you have to take a discount on price because you're not covered by insurance, right? Yeah. Um, irrespective of the quality of your product or service. And so I think that that was kind of key one of the other things that we really learned there around kind of engagement was the chief medical officer that I, that I brought in, when we were talking about try to how to get people to be more engaged and science and fact-driven engagement around managing their health, he had a great comment. He said, listen, it's not that patients aren't smart enough to understand this, is that we have spent decades in the healthcare industry coming up with language that is purposely inaccessible. To patients. Mm-hmm. And so it's not, a, yes, we have an education deficit, but it's not an intelligence problem. It's a communication problem. And it starts on the healthcare side. And I thought that was really powerful. And I've tried to, even though I focused on the prescription digital therapeutic side since then, I've tried to remember that ultimately, if you do it right, I there are some people that have done well in B2C, like Peter Tames, the big health group. I think yep. Peter's done a great job over there. Yep. But I think that the future of how we think of our learnings from from digital health and how it applies in a place like digital therapeutics is we need to think more like B to B to C. Yep. And in our case, that middle B is the doctor, so it's B to D to C.
0: Those are amazing lessons, I think, for DTX. And the fact that we talk about consumerism in healthcare and health, it's still not quiet there. And to your point, there's a companies that are succeeding in it. So some of those lessons you took to Cognoa And then anything else as you were, I know you handed off the keys a little while ago, so I don't want to dwell on Cogno, but I want to still dive into what was that journey inside the Cogno uh, as you guys were trailblazing this as a prescription digital therapeutic, that's your mantra. Some of the discussions that you were going through, some of the things that you felt again, early days, startup style (laughs) that led you now with the lessons learned to Cognito, which we'll get to later
1: yeah I mean, we started that it was early it was um, it was eight years ago. and so I think for us a few things. Um, we did spend some time trying to understand whether or not that was going to be a, kind of a d 2 c um, DTC versus a prescription. And one of the things that I think for people who are trying to navigate because there are right answers on both sides, yeah. we really started to understand who our decision makers were and our decision makers were parents concerned about their child's developmental trajectory. This is a pretty serious subject, right? This is something that you want to have that pediatrician engaged in the conversation. And so ultimately that drove us to much more of a, a prescription and physician mediated kind of solution. And, and, and I think it made the most sense there. So, I mean, I think that that was one of the real kind of keys learning over there. And then I think true improvements in healthcare They improve outcomes, they lower total system costs, and they increase patient engagement, right? And for that increasing of patient engagement, um, when we learned that mantra back when I was at Lilly, that last point about engagement wasn't part of it, right? It was just lower improve outcomes and lower costs. And so I think that if you look at people in the DTX and, and kind of therapeutic device space that are doing well, the ones that have that involvement of a strong UX voice early on, that's how you preserve that voice of the patient while still developing a prescription regulated product.
0: Agreed. Um, And so what led you to Cognito? I know you spent some time in Morningside as well as a VC, and I know that they're an investor as Cognito. So maybe a little bit touch on your VC and, and a little bit of the hypothesis and what made you join Cognito now?
1: Sure. Yeah. So Morningside had been our lead investor at Cognoa. And so I developed a relationship with them over six years. When we handed the company off to the new CEO start to drive the commercial phase of the company. I got to move to the Morningside side and really take point on on doing diligence and looking at companies in the digital therapeutic space, as well as the AI machine learning platforms in healthcare, because Cogno was built on an AI machine learning platform. So that was fun. I mean, I got to see a lot of different things. And and hopefully that makes me slightly better at presenting your story going forward, having been on the other side of so many. I I tell you, I... uh, Having been on the other side so many times, I, I tried to always be responsive and have empathy for folks that were presenting to us, yeah. right? But as I was doing that, I started to see what I thought were kind of some macro trends. And sometimes you need to take a step or two away from things to really, you need a little distance to gain perspective, right? And so being able to step out of the day-to-day of Cogno and all the things that we had going on and starting to look at the landscape, it kind of came clear to me that, I had this, I mean, alcoholics call it a moment of clarity, right? I had this I had this <laughs> moment where I'm like, I, I think I can see what the next generation of digital therapeutics is going to be. And, and kind of briefly, if you look at the, the first wave of, of digital therapeutics and, and digital health, a lot of those were kind of adherence and compliance companies. And that wasn't a great business model before you put digital in front of it. It turns out not such a great business model after you put digital in front of it, yeah. right? And then the next wave that came along are people that, we're trying to improve outcomes, but we're trying to kind of take efficacy risks off the table a priori, right? Mm -hmm. And so that became your your appified CBT companies. Take behavioral therapy that has been shown to work, make it more standardized and more easy to distribute, right? And so that's not really a technology innovation play so much. And so I think that Pairs made made great grounds there, right? They've really yeah. helped shape a marketplace. I think those products are becoming commoditized quickly. It's going to be really hard to start another pair, yep. right? I don't think I would not invest in that, right? But then, kind of looking forward, I started to see that, especially when you when you look at CNS, but I could see it in some other areas. There was an opportunity for digital therapeutics or therapeutics and device to have drug like mechanisms of effect that could actually create protein level changes and drive disease modification and do it in a way that when you finish your human proof of concept, you could have what looks like a phase two dossier with the drug. You could have a mechanism of action. You could show that it's de-risked and validated through translational medicine studies, just like a drug. And your goal is not to be an adjunct or in a compliance crutch to some other therapeutic, but to be a therapeutic intervention that would go head to head with approved drugs in the space. And so that's what I saw. And I started actively looking for places where I thought this could be. And one of the companies in in Morningside's portfolio was Cognito. And I saw there was the chance to actually have what I was kind of referring to as translational digital therapeutics companies, which is a horrible name and no one will ever use it, but that was how I was thinking about (laughs) it, right?
0: The the marketeers will self adjust and somebody will claim and not the name, so it's okay. Yeah, exactly,
1: exactly. But but that was the thing that I was most excited about, and so I spent a lot of my time looking specifically for those in incognito. I found one that had all of the pieces there, and and was on the cusp of being able to tell that story. And so I stepped in and got was lucky enough to come in, have a great team in place, and technology that I thought we could really start to get over that threshold.
0: So, you know, part of this podcast is also try to demystify for consumers, right? And health consumers, what actually is a digital therapeutic? So maybe you can walk us through that experience of a patient on Cognito, assuming, you know, as you guys get rolling and commercializing, Um, what does that experience look like from a human behavior perspective?
1: Yeah, I think to back up just a bit, I think part of what's mystifying about or confusing about digital therapeutics is that... It's just, it's a Crotean term that can mean most anything, and it's used in so many different instances. And Mm -hmm. so it has a very broad and vague meaning. And so it's really contextual, right? I think for us, it's very specific. We have hardware and software that allows us to replicate the technology that was first developed by our scientific founders, Ed Boyden and Lee Weissel at MIT. And they showed that you could start to activate the immune system of cortical neurons as well as provide direct neuronal stimulation. And so there's different ways that you can think about trying to activate neurons, but what they figured out was if you do an EG and you look at patient and they started this in animals, but if you look at brains that have more advanced um, Alzheimer's pathology, the neurons don't fire at some of the frequencies that you normally would see. And so what they found is when they added signals or stimulation at gamma frequency. It's, it's quite interesting. As soon as you start adding this to the brain, the neurons start to fire in concert with it and you start to get what's called entrainment. So different parts of the brain start to fire together in concert. And it turns out this is one of the things that stops happening as you advance pathology of Alzheimer's. And so they looked at different modalities and what we found is you know, in my past, i would worked in companies developing novel drugs with Alzheimer's. And so one of the first hurdles you have to overcome is the blood brain barrier, right? How can you get the right amount of drug into the right place? What they discovered and one of the real cruxes of this was you can get direct access to the prefrontal cortex by using the auditory cortex and the visual cortex. And instead of trying to put a a drug in through the bloodstream and ultimately get across the blood brain barrier. And so we provide modulated frequency and intensity of light pulses and auditory pulses. And we use software to be able to control how we deliver them. And those in turn start to stimulate those brain cells. And the brain cells do two things. As they start to fire at these gamma frequencies and they start to entrain, it starts to change chemokine and cytokine expression it starts to change upregulation and down regulation of processes in the cells, which turns on the immune response. So microglia activation. So we start to clear a beta and tau without having to shove an antibody in there to do it. But at the same time, if you've been around neurologists and CNS, right? And neurologists always like to talk about, you know, cells that fire together network together and having this entrainment and getting these neurons to fire together, they start to network together. And we have now been able to show, both in animals and now recently in man, fMRI that shows we're improving and increasing the functional connectivity between carriers of the brain. And so we modulate the biology of these cells and have an on-mechanism effects that creates protein-level changes. We just do it through the visual and auditory cortex instead of through a drug.
0: Got it. And again, is it a is it an app? Like how I as a consumer. So from a pure, like really, like a user experience. Yes. So as
1: a user experience, it's a device that the patient can use at home. So our most recent clinical study was 12 months on therapy. Patients did this on a daily basis at home with their home care provider, which is oftentimes a family member, mm-hmm. um, and so they're able to sit at home. Able just to have a device that they can wear at home that provides the light stimulation and the auditory stimulation.
0: Gotcha. And you know, I mean, it's interesting that Cognito was already in the portfolio. You know, we had Ed Cox on one of the previous episodes, and Alzheimer's space is tough. And sounds like you've you've been through the paces on the molecular side. I mean, you did talk a little bit, it's a big problem to solve, but you've seen, you know, the passion is just exuding. So can you kind of say like, why, why still Alzheimer's? I mean, I know it's one of the toughest problems to solve out there, both in molecular and non-molecular, but, and what makes you think you can do it again?
1: Yeah. (laughs) You know, in the world of drug development, all of the, or therapeutic development, all the low-hanging fruit's been grabbed, right? It's all been solved. We're really good at emergency medicine. We're pretty darn good at infectious disease, but there's some things chronic diseases of aging, we're getting better at bad build indications, right? People that have genetic constructs and, and we treat those And the rare disease folks are, are good at focusing on those, but the chronic diseases of aging and the diseases of just kind of wearing out are the big challenges, right? This is cardiovascular disease. This is Alzheimer's. This is, you know, MS falls into that. So the autoimmune starts to fall into that. Right. And so I think that there's just two types of people. There's people that are, that would rather make an incremental change with a lower likelihood of failure. And there's people who want to try to fix the things that have stymied others. And that's what attracts me.
0: I, I, <laughs> so, I, get, um, I get a sense of what kind of person, Yeah, which, which bucket yeah, you yeah, fall yeah. in. So uh, that's good. Yeah.
1: So in Alzheimer's is, I mean, I think that when you see major pharma companies dial back and exit basic CNS research right this is a huge problem nobody can replace what a pharma company that was spending a billion dollars in the space was doing right and and so I think continuing to work against these are the ways that we ultimately solve these problems and our understanding of the etiology of these diseases continues to increase Biogen is doing great things and if you look at what canmab is doing, if you look at what Lily is doing, even though the outcomes are sometimes you know a one step forward one step back kind of thing, our general understanding of the ideology and how to address it is progressing. And I fervently believe that these things are solvable and the technology that we're applying towards it was technology that no one had thought to try before.
0: So since you mentioned pharma, I think you may or may not know, I spent a couple of years in a, in a big pharma company and I did a- So, so, so did I.
1: I, I'm recovering.
0: I, I, <laughs> I lost all my hair. Um, you know, I keep joking around about that, but yeah. um, you know, I think to me, it's an interesting relationship as I was trying to push quite a lot in the DTX space. Uh, it's an interesting relationship. And to me, the DTX company is really getting to know the end consumer and the tremendous amount of data points and all of that. And, you know, the dilemma a little bit is is it a DTX company with the knowledge of the consumer that uh, will swallow the pill, meaning there might be an additional molecular treatment for your ultimate DTX? Mm -hmm. Or is it pharma companies that will swallow DTX companies as an add-on to them? Or is it on the spectrum somewhere? I'm just curious where you, Brent, as you've been leading and trailblazing this, where does that fall in?
1: Yeah, I think it depends on what the indication is you're trying to address, right? And In the same way that kind of earlier I, I kind of spoke about whether you end up being prescription or you end up being kind of the B2C, it really depends on, you know, if you're trying to deal with insomnia versus trying to diagnose autism or or slow the progression of Alzheimer's, right? So I think that they have different places. I think For us, I'm jaded against um, adherence compliance. I'm jaded against Apifine CT. I think that with Cognito and the companies that I see as being able to plot similar journeys, I think that there is the ability to have drug-like effects and drug-like outcomes. And when you think about working with pharma, not going in because they've got a distribution network you want to leverage, or going in because they could pay for clinical studies that you haven't figured out how to raise money for, but going in in a true co development relationship where you say, listen, we have a mechanism of action that can affect disease modification, and we have no drug drug interaction. So we can look at true combination therapies in the way, you know, the way like a Gilead would have thought about it, right? And so I think that and there's different slices right there will there be a slice for people that do adherence compliance for sure and will there be a a slice for people that are amplifying cbt but those are just not the ones that i'm excited about right now and so i I think the only problem is if you misunderstand what segment you're in because then you can waste time and money and maybe not be successful because you were just um you were tilting the wrong windmill.
0: That sound means it's time for a question from my journalistic partner on this podcast, Brian Dolan, who is the founder of Exits and Outcomes, and as I like to call him, the digital health detective. Let's see what question Brian has for our guest today. The last time we spoke, Brent, you outlined an evolution of digital therapeutics that I hadn't heard
1: before, and it resonated. If I remember right, you talked about the early digital therapeutics really being medication focused, trying to help people take their meds. And then it evolved into appified coaching, which might be one way to think about the current crop of CBT-focused digital therapeutics companies. And then the third category, which is emerging today, is a category that Achille and your old company Cognoa, as well as your current company Cognito are in. Can you explain this third category? How is it different from CBT? And can you explain it in a way that those of us who majored in philosophy can understand it? Great. Thanks, Brian. That's a great question. And happy to expand on a little bit. I mean, your, your question, explain it in the way, you know, a philosophy major would understand it. I was actually a minor in philosophy. I was one class short of being a double major in biochemistry or philosophy. So there you go. And and I might argue that some of the philosophy classes have served me better in thinking companies than, than being a biochemist. Um, but, you know, to expand a little bit in how I think about the different categories of and how I see this next generation digital therapeutics, I think it really comes down to being able to have when I talk about drug-like mechanism, it's not that I'm married to the idea of a drug or that therapeutic, but we've all come to accept this idea that drug therapeutics, whether it be biotech or pharma, have a target that they modulate. And that target modulation yields an on-mechanism effect. And then anybody who's worked in biotech and pharma, when you say target modulation and on mechanism effect, they know exactly what you're talking about, right? And so that's what we see. Our our target modulation is when we have an EEG a patient and we flip the switch and add our stimulation, you can see the gamma entrainment and the coherence start to build across parts of the brain, literally like turning a light switch. So we know we are modulating that target and we know that our therapeutic is getting in. It would be the same way as if you gave someone a tyrosine antagonist and you were able to receptor antagonist, you were able to see the change in modulation on receptor, right? And then when we think about on mechanism effect, and this is where I think this generation of of digital therapeutics is gonna be able to distinguish themselves. I think it's important to use the translational biomarkers, things like we we use PET, we use fMRI, we use QEG, use the same tools that a pharma company would use to elucidate a phase two dossier for their therapeutic. And if you can tell the story the same way with the same type of tools, then ultimately you should be able to look at the same type of label claim and be able to be valued in a similar way. And I think that's that's the exciting future for what I think of as the next generation of digital therapeutics.
0: Let me jump in here. This actually brings me to a little bit of the next futuristic discussion of you know, PDT as a prescription digital therapeutic. And then what I think people have been talking about, disease management 2.0. So if you think about like Welldoc, Livongo's, Amada's of the world, um, where's your head on it, especially as it relates to this new third translational portion of it.
1: So I think that, um, the Omadas and the Weldox and the lavangos that's a, that's a whole nother conversation there. And I think, you know, although when we started Wellness Effects, we were just kind of, we could just about, to, I think we probably see Omadas building from our building. We're both down in, in San Francisco when we started in the early days. I think what a Lavango has did so well as Glenn Tullman and his crew really, they really figured out Execution and scale on the commercialization side, right? And so I think that's quite interesting. In that, you know, people have talked for so long about expanding the role of and moving things from specialty care, which is what it was when we all kind of grew mm-hmm. up, right? Most more and more you got to the point where all GPs did was refer to specialists, right? Yep. And medical care got more and more siloed. And if you think about it, less and less patient friendly. And we've seen more and more start to drive back towards that primary care side and a bigger push to give more power to influence patient trajectory to the nurses and to the other non-MD practitioners, which makes a lot of sense. It lowers our cost of delivery. It improves turnaround and immediacy of care, which ultimately should improve outcomes, right? So it checks all the boxes. And I think that if you, the way I look at it, and I don't pretend to understand Lavon Gonomato's business like, like they would, that's really an extension, right? They're extending that continuum of care farther out of the doctor's office and more where the patient is every day. And so I think that that side is quite interesting. I think that the kind of the amplifying of CBT and those type of the, the, mm-hmm. the areas for which there's not much efficacy risk, they're just getting too commoditized. right? When I was on the venture side, I saw multiple companies that were getting stood up in that space. And it was clear to me that some of the big payers and providers were being faced with that build or buy decision. And instead of investing in an established player, they realized the barriers to interest were not that big and they're just gonna build their own, right? They've got the data, they've got the patients and the efficacy risk is low because the data is published. And so that's why I see that, not that it's not a valuable intervention. I just see that as a business model getting difficult. And so I think that this digital therapeutic piece that on the prescription side, if you start to look more like a drug or a therapeutic device, you fit into the way our healthcare service works. And so I think that has more longevity. If, you, if you're starting a company with a completely novel technology or product, that's exciting. Now, if you're starting a company with a known technology or product, like say, oh, I don't know, movie rentals, but you have a completely different business model and distribution, that's pretty exciting. Yep. When you start a company with a completely novel product or service and a completely novel business model, I think you need to start with a ton of money.
0: Fascinating advice to the entrepreneurs. I think hopefully many of them are listening. And, you know, this brings me a little bit back to uh, the experience with your Cognito product, but also, uh, you know, fitting into the existing healthcare system. Obviously, you're going after as a prescription digital therapeutic. So it's clear the doctor is a part of that equation, uh, but correct me if I'm wrong. Nurses, mm-hmm. and I guess the, the human, and I know we talked about kind of the translational piece to the masses or consumers. I keep saying it on this podcast I hate the word adherence because no human being wants to be told you're not adherent. When it comes to cognito specifically, do you look at I don't know health coaches, you know caregivers, and that human to even help that patient to truly reach their goals ultimately, right? So where do you see the humans in the prescription digital therapeutic?
1: Well, I want to go on record by saying that humans are important. So I'll just start that since it's so controversial. um, It is. You know, I think, uh, it, but no one likes to be called consumers either, right? And yet, people were loved raising money for B two C companies, and in the product world, we spend so much time talking about users. I don't like to be called a user. I,
0: I, honestly, my my wife and not this is not about her, but she uh, when she was going through breast cancer, she hated to be called patient. She said it's only a slice of my life. I'm I'm a you know so anyway, but that's a side note.
1: So, yeah, so so anyway, I think that um, I think kind of two pieces. First. For Alzheimer's for us, right? So when we look at the areas where our mechanism of action can take us, we see great ability to move the underlying pathology of tauopathies and Alzheimer's, obviously being the biggest one to start with. But we've already started to show proof of concept in some other tauopathies. And then, because of the way that we kind of have this high-level mechanism that can drive um, neuroimmune response and networking, we then start to look at things like stroke and demyelinating conditions. So all of these conditions are things where your ultimate rehabilitation involves some network of of caregiver and family. And I think that this is one of the areas when I said earlier that one of the learnings from from digital therapeutics is that companies have learned that you need a UX person in the product side early right? As opposed to pharma, when what you think of as UX, which is kind of fill finished packaging and patient instructions, that's like at the end of phase three, right? And so I think that for us, we've purposely developing our product for a home-based, only invasive intervention that can be supported by the at-home caregiver and the family. And so we think engaging that network, especially when you're working in behavioral health or when you're working in in CNS is really important, right? Because that is... Ultimately, the world around us and how we interact with it, that is part of how we drive a rehabilitation. And so I think for us, that's that's quite key, trying to expand those roles and trying to get, you know, one of the one of the things that kind of got me into back at the very beginning when we when we started Wellness Effects is that I believed that the idea of infrequent batch delivery of healthcare information, going to your PCP and having them lecture you once a year that you should eat better and lose weight and exercise more, turns out is a pretty failed communication model. And what we see around us everywhere else is when everyone takes infrequent batch communication and moves it over to higher frequency, smaller packet information that's more interactive, you just get better engagement outcomes, right? And so I think that To do that in things like Alzheimer's, you either need to have a huge care network, which is going to be burdensomely expensive, or you need to figure out how to better engage the people that are part of that environment. And to your your comment about your wife, right, not just think about how you would treat the patient, but if you think about how you're treating the person, then that opens up that whole social network and and family network around them.
0: Absolutely. And, you know, speaking, uh, and the fact that you went on record that humans are important, uh, you know, part of this podcast <laughs> is, uh, not just about the technology or the business of it, but it's actually about the person that I'm speaking to. So we started off what brought you here, but I also want to finish this off with what's your why and what gets you up in the morning?
1: Yeah. I, you know, a little bit of kind of where I started, I, I get excited when I see novel technologies that can be used to address, you know, I'm I'm kind of a healthcare person, right? And so, yeah, it would be fun to think I'm gonna jump out and start a company to design a rocket to go to Mars, but somebody's already doing that. And so I think for me, since I understand a lot of the problems in healthcare having been around it for a long time, when I see a chance to use novel technologies to solve some of these, it gets me kind of interested. And one of the things that I saw that helped me really kind of solidify this idea of these drug-like digital therapeutics that have kind of translational validation. When I when I first shared this with a couple of friends of mine, they thought that uh, a digital therapeutic that could make protein level changes sounded a little crazy. And I remember reading this really cool paper, and I was on some, oh, maybe DTX Europe or something like that, and somebody asked a question, and I just went off. Then only one person in the audience probably cared about my answer. But I saw this paper where some researchers had been using brain stimulation and they'd, I, you know, they'd looked at electricity. I think this was kind of light-based and it still required some labeling in the cell. So it was a preclinical model, right? But you can see the promise there. They used brain stimulation through light and they were able to recreate the same biochemical dissociative effect in a neuronal cell that you see with ketamine administration. Wow. And the light bulb just kind of went off, right? Yeah. Just think if we could have an electronic version of ketamine that we could flick on and off. Think of what that would do for for breakthrough pain for cancer patients, for example, right? For emergency medicine. And so I think that there's this exciting world where we stop using software and hardware technology to prop up or support or, you know, make sure people take a drug or measure a drug, but we start using it to say, forget about the drug, what was the effect we were going for? Is there a lower side effect profile way of accomplishing that? Which is what people have been asking themselves and Novartis and Lilly and Pfizer for for years, right? Um, And now I think we can start to see ways to do that. I think that's pretty cool.
0: Amazing. So I bet you, you don't even need an alarm every morning to get up. And So thank you for making the time and informing our listeners. And it was really a pleasure to actually get to know you.
1: Great. It's been an absolute pleasure. Uh, I uh, I wish I could pop over and have coffee with you in person.
0: (laughs) We will come to that day, one day. Okay,
1: excellent. Great. Well, thank you so much, Gigi.
0: Thanks so much for tuning into Digital Therapeutics' edition of Digital Health Today, a production of Mission-Based Media. Be sure to hit that subscribe button to this podcast on your favorite podcast player so you're then automatically notified when we post our upcoming episodes where I speak with dozens of leaders and trailblazers who are forging the path for digital therapeutics. If you'd like to learn more about your coach health or Brian Dolan's exit and outcomes, you can always find the links to this and more in the show notes for this episode. You can connect with me personally on Twitter at Health Eugene, or follow my journey of writing my first book, Heart Pill to Swallow, at heartpilltoswallow.substack.com. I'm Eugene Burhovich and catch you next time.